together with Jordan, but you get to eat with some good people. How about that? <laughs> if you ate with your family and just didn't clap, we're going to pray for you, right? <laughs> My family would have been upset, so I I want to get a chance to say what I did yesterday, which first off is to say that as someone now working at Pepperdine, who's worked here for almost five years, it is a blessing to our campus that y'all come and share and sing and participate. I used to, like you, fly in, get the airport, come up to Malibu and trying to catch the classes I wanted to while I also got a Lily's burrito or a, a cup of uh, clam chowder someplace or got a chance to go down and at least touch the ocean. And, uh, and so now on this side of it, when the campus fills and when the, uh, the Firestone Fieldhouse is, is full of great singing as well as the preaching and teaching, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifices that you make, whether you drive two hours or whether you fly four hours. We are thankful that you're here. Many of our present presenters come from all over the country, and uh, they come. And uh, Pepperdine does not pay uh, a, a uh, you know honorarium to everybody that comes. These these guys, we we do put them up and do feed them, but uh, we've got gifted and well known. I see Vic Knowles sitting up there, uh, gifted and well known teachers, and preachers, and writers, and leaders who give their time. And the only reason they do it, besides the fact, of course, they love Jesus is because they know that there will be folks like you here who will listen, who will take notes, who will share thoughts, and who will spread their ministry by hearing what they've shared and sharing that with others. So, number one, thank you. Number two, I want to answer the question again that I keep being asked, which is, Jeff, what do you teach? What classes do you teach here at Pepperdine? I am not a professor at Pepperdine University. I'm not smart enough to be a professor at Pepperdine University. On occasion, I will step into a Bible class and, uh, and be a guest lecturer in a class. But my work is outward facing, and that's a fancy way of them saying, you should be out there more than you're here. The president comes into me on campus, he says, why are you here? So uh, uh, let me just answer quickly a question. I lead a project that we began almost five years ago called the Youth Leadership Initiative. Its goal is very simple. We are trying to find ways to raise up the next generation church leaders, the next generation of men and women who will be serving and leading and guiding and teaching in congregations all across the country. Pepperdine has been doing this for a long time, long before I got here, but it was, um, it was their kindness to me to say, would you come and spend this next chapter of your life helping us to reach out, not simply the college students. Every Wednesday night during the school year, my wife and I host a Bible study at our house with 25 to 30 college students. My wife takes a home-cooked meal every Wednesday night for that group. Uh, somebody says, oh, you're empty nester. She says, well, six days a week, yes. <laughs> but that seventh day makes up for it. And, uh, and we're blessed. Let me tell you, we are blessed to be able to have relationships with those students. But my work in the main is out there is trying to help and encourage young people in high school and even in junior high 
to think about ministry. In the last month, I've received no less than five calls from churches saying, hey, we're looking for, and you can fill in the blank, a youth minister, a pulpit minister. We're looking for a children's minister. And I wish that I had a list of about 100 great qualified candidates to say, oh, here, pick. And what I'm sensing is it is getting harder to find qualified young candidates to be able to step into those roles. So here's what we do. We first off launch the Next Gen Preacher Service, which is a way of you helping to give a leg up to some future preachers and teachers in your congregation. It is open to any student in high school or college. There is no charge for it. It is free. They simply do a videotape of themselves, a little five-minute lesson. Some of them video it in their bedroom. They just stick the phone up there and go for it. Others will have the, the minister help them, and they'll, they'll film it behind the pulpit in the auditorium. Doesn't matter where they film it. What we're looking for is, first off, to encourage them to think about it. If, if they're not selected in the process I'm about to describe, just listen to what happens. They shoot a five-minute video of that lesson, and we don't have it email it privately to us. They post it on YouTube and send us the link. By the time we get to review them, there may already be 20, 30, or I have one that has 300 views already. Okay, that could be Grandma saying, let's watch it again. I, I, I recognize that. But I'm hoping that it wasn't all just one person. Which means, and I saw comments from some of their friends who had watched it. Some of the comments sounded like some of their friends are not Christians. So here already are these young people kind of putting it out there. Those links are sent to about 40 ministers across the country who are willing to review them and send back encouraging comments. So every student receives some encouraging feedback. And some of the names on that list of ministers you'd recognize, some of them speak here at Pepperdine, and they're thrilled to, uh, to say, wow, man, Don McLaughlin sent me this note, or, or so-and-so sent me this note. Um, then we have those ministers, they don't give this to the students, give some evaluative choices to us, you know, rank them on one five on, you know, creativity and, and content and passion. And that helps us to select 20. We bring those 20 here to Pepperdine for two and a half days of coaching and training. Uh, folks like Mike Pope, uh, Randy Harris has come and helped us, Eric Wilson, uh, myself, and uh, oh goodness, we had uh, Michael DeFazio and his wife from over at Bible College and um, uh, uh, Deardorff. So we bring in these folks, and for two and a half days, we wear these kids out. They bring in a new five-minute lesson, and they rotate through five cohorts with coaches who are working with them on it. Dan Rodriguez, our uh, dean of our Department of Religion, helps us as well. And by the time we film them at the end of the weekend, those five minutes are excellent. I get to sit and listen to 20 of them in a row. And I feel like I've been to a gospel meeting. I mean, they just light it up. Now, we professionally videotape them for two reasons. One, we send those tapes back out to the 40 ministers who help us select our four ambassadors, who you'll get to hear tomorrow. But also, because we give those links to them and say, listen, if you're trying out for a church someplace, and they say, well, do you have a little something we can look at? You might want to give them that one. Because uh, <laughs> most congregations go, wow, these guys are great. And they truly are. Uh, we take those four, and uh, they'll speak here at the Pepperdine Harbor event. They'll also speak 
typically at the uh, lectures in, in Lipscomb, the uh, summer celebration. I've gone up to Oregon and spoken at a conference up there. And the reason we do that, one of them spoke at Winterfest this year in front of 12,000 teenagers. And the young man himself was a teenager. And you think, wow, are you trying to glorify him? No, no, that's not it. We're trying to get teens sitting in the audience to go, well, crumb, I can do that. <laughs> Some of them, I can do that better than him, you know? Because in the church, we don't do as much as what we used to. And it's a very simple thing. It's laying your hand on a student who leads a prayer at the communion or maybe gives a little devotional and saying, you know, you might be called in the ministry. I wonder if you're a future preacher. I wonder if you're a future missionary. I remember hearing that as a little kid. And not just for me. I remember hearing that with others.
Well, I thought I couldn't do it, and then my husband said, how much is that latte fufu-yaya that you get from Starbucks? It cost you. She said, well, it costs about this much. He said, well, crumb, you'd only have to skip, what, so how many weeks of that? Now you get three a week, and so I'm glad for people who guilt trip others into giving. <laughs> so if you'd like to, you can just uh, look up Church Leaders Council. We'd love to have you be a part of it, or there's a place there on that same website where you can give a gift of any size. You will be helping us reach the students of tomorrow. So thank you for letting me uh, grab you as a captive audience for a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll pick up from where we left off. God, you are the God who loves us, and you've give us, given us a loving covenant. We thank you for all that is in the Bible. But Father, we ask you to help us understand how best to rightly divide your word, how best to use, teach, interpret, but most of all, how best to make ourselves come under the oversight of your word and your will. Through Jesus, for he is our picture, our model, our Savior, our Lord, in whose name we pray and all of the degrees say, Amen. Amen. Had somebody say, oh, I love the title for this class. I hate the Old Testament. Uh, that's not the title for the class. The title for the class is, oh, sorry. The title for the class, just to make sure you get it right here, is What Do You Do With a Broken Covenant? And it is really, I would say, a love-hate relationship with the Old Testament. Because I said yesterday and spent some time proving my bona fides that I love the Old Testament. And at the same time, I am challenged and frustrated by what happens as I begin to deal with it with young people, especially with adults and young people who don't know God's word well. Yesterday we said that evangelism in today's age maybe, and I would go beyond maybe, I'd say it is, but I'm going to be generous and say maybe being held back an obstacle in the way of some people coming to Jesus may be the way the Old Testament is being handled, and even the way the Old Testament is being grabbed an Old Testament Lego and put on our New Testament Lord when we try and mix and match the two concepts. If, you're, uh, if you weren't here yesterday, I, I encourage you just to listen to it. We basically said there may be a couple of reasons why this is happening. One is a loss of respect and culture for the Bible, and the other is a lack of biblical literacy and the rise of an unchurched generation. Um, because of a lack of respect for Scripture, People are more willing to jump in and say, well, look at this. This guy, uh, you know, said this about women in the Old Testament. Or look at this, this violence in the Old Testament. Or here God killed, you know, all the animals that weren't on the ark. What about that? And those are tougher questions than I remember thinking of them as when I was young. I just said, God, did you do what God needed to do? But we've had a generation who has not been raised praying and thinking about the Lord and when confronted with some of the toughest stories first, ouch, they say, yeah, that's easy to walk away from. Uh, my dad used to use this phrase when he was studying with people. Why don't we just imagine that you and I are on a deserted island and a Bible just washed up on the shore. And let's just leave all our preconceived notions behind us. And let's just pick it up and read it for what it is. Now, sometimes that's because he was studying with a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Baptist or an Episcopalian, and he wanted to make sure that they would let go of how they had been interpreting it 
and say, let's just look at the Bible for what it says. I thought about that the other night. Dad's gone. He's with the Lord. But I, I wondered what kind of conversation we'd have if I said, Dad, that may not be a good idea to put like that anymore. Because if a Bible just washed up on the shore and someone who had never read it began to read, they would start at the beginning, like you do in any book. And they'd begin to read, and within a few chapters, they'd be saying, good night. This is as bloody as Game of Thrones. I mean, this is just, and as sexy. I mean, it's just, wow. This is, I don't, I don't watch Game of Thrones. This is, this is just, boy. And before you know it, they might close the book and just say, look, I just, man, I, that's, that's not a capricious God that I'm interested in. Because they never got to the ultimate revelation, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, some of you wrote in and sent me some emails and said, you know, are, are you going to share some ideas or are you just griping? Uh, well, I'm going to gripe a little bit. <laughs> but thank you for your honesty and gentleness, brother. Uh, I do want to share some, but I want to kind of layer it in. So let me tell you that I'm not the first person who at times has been frustrated with the Old Testament. In fact, I've even got a picture here. It's not actually a picture. I'm sorry. Yesterday we went through this text in Hebrews. I think if you guys do the yellow words, it'll make part of what I'm talking about clear. For if there had been nothing wrong. Oh, come on. Say it like the grandma. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant. What first covenant? covenant, then no place would have been sought for another. And then verse 13, by calling this covenant new, the new covenant, the new covenant we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the new covenant that we walk in, in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not through commandment keeping, by calling this new, he has made the first one Obsolete. Yeah, we're reading scripture. He has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete. And outdated. will soon disappear. Okay, now somebody said, Jeff, you just grab this one. I, I, I fess up on that. But I'll level with you. I don't know if I'd ever stop and listen to what the Hebrew writer spends the first several chapters saying, which is Jesus is supreme. Over the Mosaic law, Jesus is supreme. As a high priest, you don't need these high priests anymore. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices to be made. Don't grab the neighbor's cat. You don't have to do that. You don't have to spill the blood because Jesus is the sacrifice that fulfilled the old covenant. And so the writer says, therefore, it is obsolete. And yet, why is it that Christians would fight to get the Ten Commandments put up on a wall instead of the Beatitudes? I don't know if that ever hits you. I read somebody made that statement, and I went, ouch. If I could only give you one set of directives, I'd rather give you I'd love for you to say, those are beautiful. Who said that? Let's talk. Because <laughs> his name is Jesus. 
But I want to introduce you to someone whose name is, oops, someone whose name is Marcion. Marcion, who ended up being uh, branded a heretic and excommunicated, just to go ahead and give you a spoiler here, Marcion's synod at Rome, around the year 144, was a wealthy ship owner, the son of a church leader um, in Asia Minor. And Marcion was so frustrated with the Old Testament. Now, remember, Marcion is living in a day and time when Ta Biblia hadn't even been named yet. The Bible. So he's got these scrolls of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the Law and the Prophets, it had been assembled long before Marcion ever saw the light of day by the Jews. And then came these new scriptures, the New Testament, the New Covenant, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And here he is with these two. Now imagine being one of the first guys to have a, a, a bunch of New Testament texts here, Old Testament texts here, and as you're preparing to share and teach, you go, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> say that this was some other God and this is really God. Now, I may not be doing Martian any favors here and trying to kind of simplify it that way, but I think it's pretty close. And if you want, you can read tons on Wikipedia about Martian and hear people get on both sides of that, defenders and detractors. But the church at the time says, no, you don't have the right to take God's word and say it's no longer God's word. And I, while I Marcion's pain, I do not take Marcion's path. This class is not saying, hey, let's just rip it out of the Bible and get rid of it, because it's God's word and has been since he inspired it. Amen? Amen. The question is, how do we handle, teach, and how do we navigate with a generation that doesn't know old and new? How do we introduce them to Jesus in a way that is effective when I've got this Old Testament that feels so different. God the founder, one, one writer calls him, from God the father, God the nation builder, the one who is saying, all right, I'm preferring you Israelites, so we're going to kill the Canaanites and kill these folks, and we're going to take their land and give it to you. And somebody says, man, why is God doing that? You've got to see the sequel. <laughs> you have to see the sequel. Because what you find out is that Israel was the preparation to get us Jesus. Was that the old law was the temporary project that prepared us to receive the new law. Now, I can't explain to you why, but I'll simply tell you that as I look at God's will and God's word, God had to get this done in order to get this done. It was his project, his choice, his manner, and his wisdom. 
But once this happens, what is the purpose and function of something that at least one Bible writer would call obsolete, outdated? How should we look at the Old Covenant, and how should we teach it? Now, uh, somebody raises their hand and says, hey, guys, this, this is how the Bible is. These young people just need to be taught this to understand it. And with respect, I say that may not be the most helpful approach to simply say, I was stuck with the Old Testament first, you are too. But rather to ask the question, not about re, you know, carrying your Bible up and changing it, but being able, and by the way, I don't know about you, but I remember when we used to carry a New Testament. Anybody remember those? And sometimes Psalms and Proverbs, you know, we couldn't let go of all of it, had to get a little of it in there. So you say, well, should we just be carrying New Testaments? And didn't the church kind of veer so far away from the Old Testament that we had to kind of come back to it? And is it fair for us to carry around the New Testament? I want you to pause over that question. You realize that for the first Oh, goodness, three centuries of the church's growth, virtually nobody carried around a testament of any kind. Well, how'd they do it? They listened, learned, and shared. Our first, first brothers and sisters in Christ were not going around saying, all right, let's open the Bible and reason together. Whenever I hear that scripture, let us reason together. I see people with Bibles open. They didn't have it. And yet they were teaching and leading people to Jesus at times in huge numbers. Hmm. So if I've got a copy of John or Luke or Luke Acts, I've got what many of them used to convert hundreds if not thousands in cities. And by the way, if you know the story of Jesus, then you've got enough to share it with somebody else. Amen? It's, it's part of our Western culture, but also part of the way we got raised was to say we're information processors. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some information, and when you get this information, then that's going to make you a Christian. The conversion to Christianity is not an information process, it's a transformation process. You become a Christian not by knowing Scripture, but by knowing Jesus. You become a Christian not by simply saying, I believe in this book, but rather by saying, I believe in the Lord. Now, you say, I've got to find out about him from this book. Yes and no. Yes, this is the story of Jesus. But when my mom told me the story of Jesus, there was no book in her lap. When my dad told me that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, I said, carve it out on stone. But there's a new version written on the tablets of That's actually the word of God that I need to be taking with me always. Amen? Now, do I still want my scriptures? Absolutely. Am I still going to open the Bible and say, hey, let's look at it? Yes. And hopefully at the right time, in the right way with each individual. But I wonder I wonder if even beyond that, we're struggling with having played Legos with some Old Testament concepts. Uh, I said this yesterday, and I'm going to say it again. 
The old covenant, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, is not our covenant. It was a covenant made with Israel. Now, there are ways that we can spiritualize and use a metaphor and say, well, yeah, but we're kind of metaphorically Israel. Well, yes, so long as you stay metaphorical and don't drop back to saying, okay, then we grab a hold of their actual law. Somebody asked me, Jeff, do you think the Old Testament, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, is no longer binding? And I have to say, well, I don't live by the Ten Commandments, and neither do you. Well, I don't, I don't kill, I don't steal. Yeah, how about that Sabbath thing? How's that working for you? <laughs> well, I'm going to try and take a rhythm in my life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Either we live by it, or we don't. And for us to go, yes, I do all that, and I'm going to tell my kids, honor your father and mother. Paul quoted that. Hey, Paul's got a right to quote that. And I don't mind Paul saying, here's how you live it out. But what we're going to see is that Paul never places New Testamental theology on an Old Testament co uh, coaster when it comes to application. What he does time and time again is not say, you need to do this because the third commandment says so. He says, you do this because that's how Jesus lived. And we want to walk in the way of love. Now, I know you think, well, I think I, think I can think of some exceptions to that. Hang on to those and let's see if we can walk through some of it. You see, this little truth I missed that the Hebrew scriptures are God's word to God's people at that time. They're inspired, they're important, but the old covenant is not my covenant. It's a key truth that we as teachers need to know so that as we're talking to someone, we're not drawn back into Old Covenant thinking. Okay, first off, a word about covenants. Um, it was Melito of Sardis in the late 2nd century who actually coined the phrase Old Covenant and New Covenant, using the word we now translate Testament, Old Testament and New Testament for our Bibles. And it actually gives us a, <coughs> a, a missed notion of how many covenants there are. There's actually at least three, and some scholars want to say five or six, but I'm just going to go with the three. In the Old Testament, you've got the Noahic covenant. What is a covenant? Covenant's an agreement. It's agreement between two parties. Now, the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant given to Noah and the covenant given to Abraham, okay, those are covenants from a suzerain who is a unilateral covenant. It goes like this. I say to my wife, I do. I will be faithful. I will love you, I will honor you. That's unilateral. Here is a non-unilateral covenant. I do, as long as you do. And if you don't, I won't. That's not the kind of covenant God gave Noah. He didn't say, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky and it's going to be a sign and I'm never going to destroy the earth again unless you mess up and then build another boat. No. He said, that's it. It's on me. When he gives the covenant to Abraham, he even goes through an amazing moment in Genesis chapter 12 in which Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And he's given him this, this promise. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. All people will be blessed through your seed. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Abraham, who's had a hard time even making one little baby, much less a whole nation, is like, wow, this is unbelievable. Abraham falls into a sleep after doing what God said to do, which was cut some animals in half and spread the halves apart. Is this ringing any bells with any Old Testament readers here? 
So his friends say he's half departed. Oh, gross. Why would you do that? It wasn't a meal. This is not food. This is taking an animal and whacking it in two and killing it for the purpose of ceremony. What's a ceremony? This would be done, uh, some suggest, if you and I agreed that uh, my son was going to marry your daughter and we'd, we'd make a covenant about it. And we'd take animals and we'd cut them in half. And we'd put half here and half there. And then you and I would walk together between the halves. You know why that was done? There were no lawyers. <laughs> if there had been lawyers, the lawyers would have said, we've got a 19-page draft here of the 32 pages, and here, sign here, sign here, where the yellow is, initial here, initial here, initial here. But they didn't do that. So instead, in this culture, they would simply say, here's the blood, here's the death. If I don't fulfill this, Jeff, you're really saying, God is saying, I do. And here's what I'm going to do. 
If you do this, I do this. If you do this, I do this. So God's still making a covenant that you could say it's still him making it. But the covenant response, the covenant reality comes out of the behavior of the other covenant members. Everybody tracking with me on this? Which is why the Jews were so careful to say, strain out the gnats, you know, and be very careful about what side of the bed you're going to get up. Why? Because I want to get out on the right side, because I want to be blessed by God. I want to be a right person. I want to be a person who, who does everything right. And so they took the commandments and they multiplied the commandments. Listen, let me tell you, I'm not saying, oh, those people did that, ha, ha, ha. I have been right there with them. How do I know that? Because I tried as a Christian. I tried to take the new covenant and make it the old covenant. Does the Bible say you have to go to church on Wednesday night? Where did I come up with that question? I grabbed an Old Testament Lego and stuck it onto Jesus. It will, now, now wait, what, how far can you go? Here I am grabbing up that Old Testament theology, that theology of you've got to obey and do the right things, and by obeying and do the right things, then you win a right relationship with God. If you don't, dude, you're cursed. Right? Cursed in the city, and cursed in the country, and cursed in the needing, the needing trial. Everything's cursed. Now, once you get a hold of that and think, you mean that's the old covenant that's obsolete? That's the old covenant that's outdated? This whole concept, this is what one, how one writer puts um, Deuteronomistic theology. Yahweh will bless those who obey and punish those principle is expressed in the reverse form. If you're suffering, then it must be because you disobeyed. And if you're prospering, it must be because you have been obedient. Yowch. That's what happens when I reach back and I take old covenant thinking and I put it in my new covenant life. Oh, look at Brother Bob. Somebody will give me one of those plaques we talked about yesterday. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. And not to harm you. I'm going to say, wow, when did Jesus say that? He didn't. Prophet Jeremiah said that to the Israelites. What did Jesus say? He said, oh, people will hate you. You'll be beaten. You'll be punished. You'll be uh, scorned. Uh, some of you get stoned and killed. Welcome. Because if you do everything right, what happens to you? You end up on a cross. Because the only fellow that did everything right ended up on a cross. So when I try and remove this, this Old Testament thinking from my heart, I find myself saying, oh man, but still, I see it in life. And I've used it to teach my kids. Don't do this. 
because this will happen. Now, just because I'm saying take away Old Testament concepts doesn't mean the cause and effect has stopped, right? Deuteronomic, Deuteronomistic theology is not, if you jump off a building, you're probably going to get hurt. That's called common sense, okay? Deuteronomistic theology has to do with my relationship with God and how I gain right relationship with Him, which prompts me growing up to ask questions like, is this a sin or what can I do to get closer to God? And I'll say in a minute, both of those are selfish questions. I had a, somebody email me and say, Jim, I'm a little concerned that the way you're talking about this might lead to anti-Semitism, might lead to, you know, feeling like, hey, you're, you're putting down uh, the Jewish scriptures. You're, you're, you're uh, causing folks to maybe think, oh, the Jews are the bad guys. And I, I, I love that email. Thank you for sending it. First, let me say, I don't believe that's where this is heading at all. In fact, it is the Old Testament that they quoted when they went to kill and drive the pagans out of Jerusalem in the Crusades. It was not turn the other cheek they were quoting. It was cleanse the land. It was drive them out from among you. It was Old Testament theology that got us into anti-Semitism and the Crusades and a land-based nationalism. If my people who are called by my name, anybody remember when that was a culture? If my people who are called by my name will repent and turn to me, I will heal their land. I can't tell you how many of memes I got of those with flags in the background.
Please, God, you'll be blessed. Do the right thing, and it'll go good for you. Leftover to covenant thinking has been used to support many selfish acts, including the prosperity gospel. And I'm sorry, but that's why Westboro Baptist stands out there with signs that say God hates sags. They're not getting that from Jesus. And the text they will quote and the text they will point to are Old Testament texts. Well, New Testament talks about, yes, the New Testament talks about immorality and impurity. And Paul writes and says, this is what some of you were, but guess what? God washed you, and God clothed you, and God forgave you. And when the woman who was caught in adultery was found by Jesus, what did he do? He did not stone her. Guess what law he just broke? That outdated, obsolete One guy who could have killed her with a snap of his fingers, he didn't need a rock. As I pray and look and read, I find myself recognizing that we are under stern orders to let go of old covenant thinking. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to take a blast through the New Testament now to see if we can't get a handle on what he's talking about. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul gives us these words. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, you read that and you think, wow, who was trying to enslave them? They were doing it to themselves. How were they doing it? By going back to the old covenant. That's the context for that. How did that happen? Here we go. It happened like this. We want to take our cues from Jesus and watch how the apostles handled the new that Jesus brought in. First off, Jesus brings us something new. There were so many ways in which he did it that we don't get because we didn't live in a culture where the old covenant was what was the way to be right with God. And Luke Kennedy teaches the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan, they're playing stump the rabbi. And one guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? But he's, it's the same question. What do I need to do to please God? Everybody knows the rabbi's answer to that. You must obey the commandments. That's what you do to please God. You must love the Lord and obey his commandments. Instead, Jesus says, like a rabbi, let me tell you this story. <laughs> there was a man who was going down the road to Jericho, and he was beset on by thieves, and he was left there bloody, and along came a Levite who walked right by him. Oh, by the way, the man was consorting with people who wanted him to have a, another Jerusalem up there, as it were. You've got to go way back in Old Testament history to get this. That's why we do need to study and, and know it. But watch the guy. He walks by. Good Samaritan. Doesn't walk by. He stops. He goes off the chain with goodness. Okay, I might stop and say, oh, I'm so sorry, your tire's flat. Here, let me help you. But if I get there and he doesn't have a spare tire and he says, oh man, can you give me a ride? Um, okay. Uh, where are you going? San Francisco. <laughs> what if I said, well, get in, buddy. We're headed to San Francisco. 
would, would you have gone, wow, Jeff, what if I told you a story that I met a guy with a flat tire, and he said, where are you going? I'm going to Minnesota. I'm going to San Francisco. I'll drive you. So I drove him to San Francisco. Took me 14 hours to do it. Got him to his hotel. He left his wallet in the car. <laughs> I pulled out my American Express card, and I went in, and they said, is this just for the room or incidental? I said, everything. For how long? For as long as you need the room. And I'll be back up here in a little while. I'll pay you for whatever else you spend. He paid it. Maxes out my card. <laughs> okay, that's a story that would cause everybody to go, oh, yeah, right. Like, anybody's going to do that. Jesus tells this story so the Pharisees around the room, <laughs> oh, man, around, this, around the, uh, the circle were saying that, and then he nails him. So which one of the men was uh, the neighbor? himself there at the house of Cornelius. In fact, when he comes to Cornelius' house, this is after three sheets. Peter is three sheets into the wind by the time he gets to Cornelius' house. Non-Bible readers confused. Okay. He's on the roof of the house and God keeps letting down these sheets. It's full of what kind of animal? Unclean. And he says, eat. And what does Peter say? Oh, you're not going to trick me that way. I was raised by a good mama. I don't eat any of that stuff because that's not right. And again, and again, I don't know if God was giving him a chance, you know. The angels are saying, nuke him. Don't send the sheep. Let's, let's see if he gets it right this time. And finally, God says, what I have said is clean. You don't get to say it. house. What kind of house? Gentile house. 
I'm betting that this might have been the first time. Like me going to a Lutheran church. This might have been the first time. <laughs> you had to be here yesterday to hear that story. This had to be the first time that he is heading, and then he gets to the door. Oh, man. Jeff, why, what makes you think he felt that way? What's the first thing he said when he walked in the house? I imagine you all know that it is against the law for me to be here even talking to you. That's literally what the text says. He says, I, 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 I know you realize that it is, it is against our law for me to be here with you Gentiles, but God has shown me something new. God has shown me, and before you know it, he's baptizing them. God had to take that Lego out of his hands. Weren't you listening? I thought, for the good Samaritan, I was there, but that is distracted me. And so, <laughs> give me that, put that back. No, that doesn't count anymore. You mean Gentiles are as good as Jews? By the way, what makes a person a Jew? Law-keeping. Law-keeping. Don't, don't tell me it's just your birth. Don't tell me it's your DNA, because you will be disassociated in Jesus' day, in that model. That's what made. I mean, y'all were... Well, it starts spreading. Paul's excited. Once he gets knocked off his horse, he's excited. <laughs> and he starts preaching the gospel. And Gentiles start responding. And guess what happens? Judaizers from Israel, from uh, Jerusalem start, start following Paul. Paul would have a big revival, a bunch of people would be baptized, and they'd show up. Hi! We're, uh, we're film strip number two. <laughs> go ahead and start it, yeah, folks. Here we go. Circumcision. You begin with, and all these Gentiles are like, whoa, Paul did not tell us about this. He only had film strip number one. That's why we're here. Get out the knife, Yaakov. And, and, and you, can, you can only imagine his word gets back to Paul, and Paul says, they did what? And one time, they got a little ahead of schedule and got there at the same time Paul was there. And Paul, the scripture says, was so, it says he brought them into sharp disagreement with them. I think that's an understatement, actually. <laughs> Although I do think the word sharp is probably appropriate for that particular. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get over here into Paul's crazy moment. Paul in the book of Galatians absolutely lets loose. When he says, what is happening? Now, let me, let me, get, this, let me get this in order here because I'm going to rush ahead of myself. When they come into this sharp conflict, it's like, okay, we got to settle this. We're going back to Jerusalem. And something called the Jerusalem Council takes place. In the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, uh, the, uh, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem gather together, including James, the brother of Jesus. And they have this question. From Acts 15, 1. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the question on the floor, counsel. What's the question? Is the old covenant still valid? Because for them, circumcision was the mark, was the sum of the old covenant. They were not saying, is this one command still valid? They were saying, is our way of understanding our relationship to God still valid? 
discussed. Peter got up and said, okay, let me tell you what happened to Cornelius' house. And then James stood. And James said one of the most important statements for anybody here who's Gentile, ever. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. One person in that discussion even said, we haven't been able to keep this. Why would we want to strap it on them? Or take it off them, as the case may be. We, we have not been able to live out the law. And you want to do that to these fresh new brothers who are going, wow, Jesus, this is cool. Sign me up. They're leaving all these pagan gods or Roman gods. And you want to tell them, oh, well, we do have this set of silverware that goes along with it. I didn't mean that that way. I, I'm just trying to put myself in the room in the moment. And then James says, so let's undo that. Let's just ask them to do a very few things. And the things that he asks them, they ask them to do in the main. Avoid meat sacrifice to idols and blood. You ever wonder why? It's all potluck stuff. <laughs> because a potluck is a very important thing. So they ask them, you need to make sure and not do something that's going to hurt your brother. Why? Because that's our commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. But what about all the rest of it? You're good. Wait a minute, hold it, wait, wait, wait. Sabbath is on. God never gave you Sabbath. We have to deal with that as Jews. Not you. Not your covenant. Question in the back. Ten Commandments? Well, that was given to us. Dude, no way. <laughs> I Before you take a step, you now do have a covenant. It's the new covenant. Oh, okay. What's the new covenant? Let's see, Jesus said, you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he summed it all up with really just one new commandment. It's our big one. Uh, love one another as I've loved you. So I can't cheat on my wife? Well, tell me if that's loving your wife as Christ has loved you. Actually, it works. <laughs> you have to give your life for your wife, because that's what Jesus did for you. Question in the back. Can we get the Ten Commandments back, please? <laughs> we, we've been talking about it back here. We're, we're actually ready for surgery. We will. Because <laughs> this new command is way harder than all ten of the old ones. In fact, all ten of the old ones will roll right into this new one. Because it is Jesus. He is the new covenant. His blood marked it. His way leads it. And love is the heart of it. So when I find myself at a moment where I want to reach back and grab this Lego, and we'll have to get to Galatians tomorrow, just know Paul has a sharp cut.
comment for you. Because Paul says, excuse me, boys, if you take one Lego, you have to buy the whole set. You can't just take one. And let me tell you, you do not want this set of Legos. And the church says, bow your head. Father, it is our desire to love you and to honor you. Father, we do not want any misunderstanding of the way the old covenant was fulfilled by Jesus, and we do not live under it to dilute or distract or dishonor the new covenant. Because quite frankly, God, we'd prefer one with loopholes. We'd prefer one we could negotiate our way around. But you tell us to love our neighbor. We have a new covenant. We have a Lord. Let us follow him.